I'd like to read this chapter, just 18 verses, beginning verse 1, Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompensive reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which is the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visit him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom all are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifies, and they are who are sanctified, are all of one. For which cause... He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, and in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto them, unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him, that has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brother, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. I love chapter 2 of Hebrews. I guess it's one of my uh, chapters in the Bible that I study as much as any chapter. And I heard Dr. Uh, Harold Seidler say one time uh, that he wanted to get up a sermon. He's working on some on the little word "but," and uh, it's mentioned several times in this, or a couple of times in this chapter. A great meaning to it. Mister Yeager taught me that it was a conjunction in English. What that simply means is it's a carryover, a carrying on 
of a thought that he was previously spoken of. So in the first chapter, <clears throat> he's talking about angels and principalities and, and all these things that God had made. And then he brings out the thought that Jesus is better. The whole book of Hebrews has to do with one thing. That is, Jesus being better. The word better is taught all the way through <clears throat> the book of Hebrews. And if you'll notice in chapter 2, the word therefore, uh, and it's talking about then what we've just learned in chapter 1, now it's going to give you some great thoughts because of what we had just learned. And it's, you better take heed, it's saying, or give more earnest heed to things which we have heard or been taught in chapter 1. Now in chapter 1, we studied the superiority of Christ. And Christ is superior in His majesty as the Son of God. And this truth exemplified in the Word, the Bible. He is God, the Son, without peer in the universe. And because of this, there follows the first of the Hebrew warning passages. It's a warning against disregarding God's salvation. Now we come to the part of the three of this part of our study, and that is the experience of the sonship of Christ in verses 1 through 4. This part begins with the word therefore. So we remember the word therefore in the Bible generally sums up the whole of the uh, preceding argument. Since Jesus is God's unique Son, it is imperative that we accept at its full face value the salvation Jesus was procured for us. How can we logically do anything else is what this is talking about. Now, we must appropriate the gospel. Verse 1. How do you do this? By paying good heed to it. It is possible, verse 1, to let it slip. Look at it. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So it is possible that you sit under the preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Him bearing our sins, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. It is possible that a person could sit under that and just let it slip on by without receiving. So the word slip means to float passively by. A picture of I don't care or criminal neglect, enormous privilege are extended to people in the salvation offered by the Son to do nothing about them, to float in right on past them is to incur God's judgment then. In other words, <clears throat> if you let the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, pass on by you without accepting it, then you're under the wrath of God. Let me show you a little illustration, I believe, explain it. <clears throat> in, uh, if a soldier in an army whose duty was to disarm landmines had to go to school to learn how to do this, but in school he paid no attention, didn't listen to his instructor, how foolish it would be because his very life depended on his learning the details of those landmines and knowing where and how to rightly disarm them, to neglect or pass on by those instructions, then would be disastrous in death to him when he got on the field. Now that's the same thing 
that he's talking about here. Also, matters of the great value hinge upon the salvation provided for the Son. Verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So the warning is presented to us. Then note, the claims of the law could not be neglected. Verse 2. Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward. Now, the Hebrew readers would understand this. The law of Moses, given through the administration of angels, carried with it not only precepts and principles, but also dire punishment as well. The death penalty was laid down for at least one form of transgression made under each of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, uh, and, all it, and you can follow all the way through, each commandment carried with it a possibility of the death penalty. Now, uh, if it found expression in stealing or adultery, for instance, in addition, the death penalty was appended to the Mosaic Law for several other offenses, for instance, uh, for form, for, for Profaning God's altar, Exodus 28, for profaning the tabernacle vessels, in Numbers chapter 4, for rebelling against constitutional authority, Deuteronomy chapter 17, for uttering false prophecy, Deuteronomy 18, for witchcraft, Exodus 22, for having sex with the beasts, Exodus 22, for incest, Leviticus 20, for homosexuality, Leviticus 20, in verse 13, and so on. Now, what it's talking about is, if the law was given, and God's law, you overstepped it, or you did as you pleased, and went on past it, and did whatever, there was a penalty for that, and that penalty was death. Now, again and again, throughout their history, the Hebrew people felt the weight of God's displeasure for their rebellion and sin. At times, retribution was swift. At other times, it seems to slumber. But it always came. Now, here's what I'm saying. If the Bible says in, in, to the children of Israel, if you do this thing, a death penalty is facing you. Sometimes, immediately, they were killed if they disobeyed God. Other times, it went on for a while, they would live on for a while, but they still died under God's law. Now, if there was no escape under the law, is what he's saying, then uh, always, when God's revelation was yet incomplete, now think about this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation in verse 3, when it is complete, all of God's law now is complete in Jesus Christ. Well, if it was, you couldn't get away with anything when the law was not complete in Christ Jesus, how much more should it be since it is complete in Christ Jesus? Watch what it said. But, verse 9, I mean, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard it. All God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts 
of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now, to neglect a remedy is a serious matter as to deliberately reject the remedy. Take, for instance, a man has a bad pain. He ignores it. He doesn't like doctors or taking medicine. His pain gets worse and worse. So finally, urged on by his wife, he goes to the doctor. Now, you have cancer, the doctor says. You must have an operation. Now, says the doctor, he must take treatments to see it doesn't spread. But the man goes back home, ignores the doctor's instruction, neglects the operation, neglects the treatment, and neglects the medicine. He gets worse and worse and dies. Now I ask you something. Whose fault is it? Is it the doctor's fault? Is it the medicine's fault? No, it's his fault. Amen. It's for this simple reason. Uh, here's another man then, and he feels guilty. He has sinned against God. And he's surely miserable. He doesn't like church. He doesn't like preachers. So he denies that there is anything wrong with him. But the convicting work of the Holy Spirit continues. Urging by his wife, he goes to church and hears the gospel. It is nasty medicine to him. He is told he is a sinner under the sense of death. He's urged to come to Christ, who also alone can save sinners. But he goes home and neglects God's remedy. At last he dies and goes to lasting eternal hell fire. Who's it for? Did God send him to hell? No. The Bible says that God don't want anybody to go to hell. He goes to hell on his own fault. He, had, he neglects so great salvation. Now, so, number one, we must appropriate the gospel. In other words, what I'm talking about you can hear the gospel. You can hear all the truths about the gospel. But you've got to bring it down to yourself. Amen. And here's what I, I heard Dr. Oliver B. Green say this years ago in a sermon I was reading of his. You've got to bring it down home. John 3.16 is an example of that. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Well, you know what most people want to do? They want to shoot it like a shotgun out there. God so loved the world. But the truth of the matter is, you've got to bring it to you. Amen. For God loved you. Yes. Brother Strong? Yes, ma'am. Does transgression mean sin, or does it mean to cross over? It means to cross over God's line. Okay. Transgression is God drew a line in the sin. Okay. In the laws. You know, the Ten Commandments and so on. God draws laws. He said, don't step over. If you do, you pay the price. That's what it means. Yep, that's what it means. And so, uh, so first you've got to appropriate the gospel to yourself. Secondly, you must appreciate the gospel. Now look at verse 3. How shall we accept if we neglect? And it goes down after you've heard it. Now, uh, notice the first of all how the gospel has been conveyed to us. Now, Verse 3, the last part, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. All Old Testament teaching was revitalized by the Lord. And all New Testament truth was revealed by the Lord. Jesus clothed the truth with flesh and blood. 
of living it out day by day. Jesus offered men salvation in exchange for faith in himself. Now, so we must appreciate the gospel because of the unique way it was conveyed to us. In other words, suppose you hear a preacher who's standing in the pulpit and he's preaching God's word. Well, I don't respect the preacher, and I don't respect the church, and I don't respect the Bible. So I don't respect what he's preaching. Uh, you know what the Bible teaches? You appreciate what he's preaching from. You appreciate he's preaching the Bible. You appreciate he's preaching about the Lord Jesus. It's not him, but it's the what he's preaching. Now, I don't want to go into this thing, well, you do as I say, do, don't do like I do. That's a bunch of baloney too. A preacher ought not be in the pulpit if he feels that way about it. But what it is saying, you don't have to raise the man that's doing the preaching up here. You don't have to raise all the books he's got and all this uh, positioning up here and believe what he's saying. That's not the important point. The important point is, Who's, do, who's he talking about? Who's he presenting? Who has the authority? And here's what Hebrews is saying. If man can't be trusted with the Word of God, and man can be trusted with the Word of God, well, that's good. But now we appreciate the gospel because Jesus is doing the preaching. Amen. See, it's not just another man. When Jesus says something, you better pay attention. See, you can sit on the man and you can play and you can do whatever you want to in church and make fun of it all you want to. But when Jesus is saying something, that's different. He has authority from God. He is God in the flesh. And so when He speaks, you pay attention. Now, the Gospel has not only been conveyed to mankind by the Son, but it has infallible confirmed to us in two new ways. First of all, it's been confirmed by the truthful witness of his disciples. At the last part of verse 3, it was confirmed unto us by them that heard it. Uh, for three and a half years, these men walked and talked with Jesus and drank with him and eat with him. And they drank in his word. They treasured his teachings. They learned from his example. They were won by his infallible proofs. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Now, we have not followed cunning devices of fables, wrote Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 1 John 1, verse 1 and 2. In other words, if I hear about Jesus Christ in the Word of God, I'm not talking about fiction here. I'm not talking about somebody don't know what they're talking about. I'm not listening to them. I have an infallible truth because uh, the one that wrote the book of Hebrews are used by the Holy Spirit to pin down the book of Hebrews and God mentions these are testimonies so you know, that says Jesus is the Son of God. They have authority. Why? Because they walk with Him. They talk with Him. They knew Him when He was here on the face of the earth. Now, if I want to know something about anything, let's say electricity, for instance. I want to know how to put in a plug. I want to know how to make that thing work. I don't go to a chef that's seen a plug 
and maybe he knew a little bit of work together, plugging, plugging a coffee maker or whatever, and ask him, how does that thing work? He don't know. He just knows it makes the coffee pot hot. Amen? Now, what we do, though, we look up an electrician that's been there and experienced it. He knows how it works. How does this thing work? He has authority to tell you. It's the same way when it comes to the Word of God. We read a disciple, Peter, John, James, and all the disciples, and we read behind their testimony, and we say, well, so what? These men ain't nothing but men. Now, wait a minute. God chose these men to walk and to talk to the Lord Jesus for a purpose. He chose those men to experience the fellowship and the life of Jesus on this earth. They were right there. They saw it. They experienced his life with him as he went through this life. Then pay attention when what I'm talking about Jesus said, because they're telling you the truth. And the authority that they're telling you the truth is because they was with him. They experienced. No man can do these things except to be God. And these men saw what Jesus did, and so they pinned it down. So when you say, Peter said so and so, pay attention. Why? Because Peter was there. He has the authority to say so. Uh, again, the gospel has been confirmed by three full witnesses of God himself. Verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. Now, the signs and wonders were to convince the Jews because the Jews require signs. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Uh, the divers' miracles were to convince the Gentiles. The gifts of the Holy Ghost were to convince, to confirm the message to Christians. So, <coughs> Christ, in His superior majesty, as a Son of God, has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to life through the Gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And because of who He is and what He has done, and because of the truth embodied in himself, there is no escape for those who neglect salvation through him. So, the Hebrew children are brought to the, uh, to the place of convincing of faith. Now we come to the second part of the book of Hebrews, and it begins in verse 5. This Jesus appeared in his ministry as the Son of Man. Now, for unto the angels had he not put in subjection the world to come, for all he spake, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visit him? Thou madest him a little lower than angels. Now, I heard a man preach a, a whole sermon on that God is talking about man here. I mean, you and I. And he's made us a little lower than angels. No, he's not. He's talking about the Son of God. Because if you look, it plainly tells you so. Thou, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the Son of man that thou visited him? So he's talking about Jesus. Thou madest him a little lower than angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. And didst set him over the works of thy hands. And here it is then. <clears throat> when you come to the second part now, 
the superiority of his ministry as the Son of Man. Three main topics here. Christ's sovereignty as man. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little older than angels, for the sufferings of death. In other words, then, as you can't kill an angel, but you can kill man. Jesus took on the body of a man that he could die for you and I. I had a smart addict in my office one day talking about that you believe in the death of Jesus Christ, or you believe in the death of Jesus Christ, and you're saying that he was God in the flesh. And he said, you can't kill God. And I said, you're exactly right. God the Father cannot die. If God could die, then he wouldn't be God. That's why he took on a body of human flesh where he could die. Why? Because he's made a little lower than angels in the position that now he can die for our sins. Now, I want you to watch this. So first, you have the sovereignty of man as man. Then you have Christ's sufferings as a man in verse 10. For it became him, for to whom all all things, and by whom all things, in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, then the last part, Christ's sympathy as man. That begins in verse 11. For both he that is sanctified and those who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will declare my name unto my brother, and so on. Now, the beautiful part of this, as man, the Lord Jesus in his sovereignty and his sufferings and his sympathy meets all the needs of man. As a son of God, it might seem remote and inappropriate, but as a son of man, he is a, the nearest of kin to all mankind. Whether you believe this or not, Jesus is my brother. Amen? Now, watch this, please, because it's very important. Much is made of the later in the book when the discussion turns to the priesthood of the Lord. But here in this verse, you got to know that the Son, for all His dazzling superiority, is near and approachable as just the kind of Savior we need then. In other words, what we want to do is lift God up here. Now you get this, there is nobody can approach God. No man has ever seen God. In His superiority, no man can approach God and say, you don't belong on that throne, get down. Now, you can't have authority. No man can approach God. If he did, he'd consume him in his might and his glory. But I can approach Jesus, who is God. I have a mediator between God and man now, the man Christ Jesus. And if Jesus had not condescended and came down and took on the form of a man, I would have no approach to God. And that's the superiority of salvation. Because Jesus came down where I could. He's my brother. He's a brother kin. He's a man. <clears throat> now, Christ's sovereignty as man begins here. The angels, great and glorious as they are, must one day yield before man. Listen to this. 
Verse 5, From the angels, had he not put in subjection the world to come? While we speak, man's destiny eclipses that of the angels. The heavens themselves are to be ruled by man. And man is to judge both the cosmic and the angels. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, 2, 3. Think about this just a minute. When you're saved by God's grace and you go to heaven one day, and God's going to give us authority to rule and reign. He does not do that for angels. So one day we'll be over angels. And we're over everything that God has made. God's going to give us rule over. So man, when you talk about angels, as great as they are, man's going to rule over them one day. And God has given us that authority. But uh, no less wonderful has his, than his destiny is his dignity of man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visit him? Uh, Psalms 8 verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visit him? So, Psalms 8 verse 4 is carried over to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6. So, Throughout the Old Testament era, God visited man. He visited Abraham, Adam in the Garden of Eden. He visited Abraham, Hagar, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samson's parents, Elijah, Daniel, and the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. He visited with Israel in the wilderness. He dwelt among them in glory cloud he promised in the promised land. But best of all, he has now visited men in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I laugh at these people that want to say that Jesus never had anything or never came down to man in the Old Testament. Yes, he did. One of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible to me uh, that Jesus came in the Old Testament was, you remember when the, uh, God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And the three uh, men of God came and stood in the, t uh, the tent door of Abraham. And the Bible says that two of them went forward, the angels, two angels went on, but the man of God stayed with Abraham. That's Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, to get all that in your mind is pretty hard to conceive. But the Bible over and over says he appeared to men in the Old Testament. God did. But best of all, he's now visited man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a fact of eternal astonishment that God's delight should be with the sons of man. Just suppose the President of the United States would come down day and visit you, and he would say, I'm coming to your house today or the Queen of England, or some great one in authority. It's even a greater surprise and honor and delight that God delights to visit men. God loves us and delights in their company. He desires man's company and wishes to abide permanently in their hearts. These great truths must never be allowed to become commonplace. Even angels wonder at this truth. Now, that's the first 30 of chapter 2.
Next week I want to take up the second part of it, and this again was verse 7 and 8. Here's the statement about the distinction of man. Although sin has interrupted God's original intention with man's race, it is not means, it does not mean uh, that uh, he's done away with the probation involved in God's plan for man. Man was placed in a perfect environment, that is, in the garden. Man was always also given a specific work to do and a specific trust. Man had all things put under his feet. Man was the monarch of all that he surveyed. Man was to tend and to keep the garden for God. Man was created to stand between the world and the beast and the the world of of angels. Man is higher than the beast and and a little lower than angels. But only the probationary period. Right now, we do not have the powers of an angel. We cannot actually slay every firstborn creature within the boundaries of the properties of angels. We cannot appear and disappear. And you could go on and on. So we're not in that realm of angels today. But one day we'll be above them. And that's what this is talking about. And that's why verse 9 is so important. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than angels, for the suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Then it goes back to verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The important thing about Hebrews is the great salvation. It's not just salvation. Great salvation. Greater than angels. Greater than principalities and power. But salvation is a great thing. Amen. I wish I could. I've been trying all my life, ever since God called me to preach in Him, I've been trying to tell people how great salvation really is. And a lot of people want to make fun of it. They want to down it. But it's the greatest thing that ever happened to mankind. And that's what Hebrews is written about. Father, blessing the coming hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.